Hi everyone and welcome back to a Light Into My Path podcast. We're trying to conclude this study on the history of the King James Bible or the official name, the authorized version as it is. And for a text uh, today, I want to look in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. And we read, it says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, which is another word for instruction, for reproof, which is another word for evidence, uh, for correction, which is another word for straightening up again, for instruction in righteousness, which is another term for continually perfected. Uh, Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And that word perfect there. Uh, means completeness, to, to reach a goal, to achieve a purpose. It does not mean perfection at like 100%, like you don't ever make any mistakes. Of course, we're human. We make mistakes all the time, but that's what it means to be complete, to achieve a purpose, to reach a goal. Okay, picking up where we had left off uh, last time, we were talking about uh, the rules that King James had uh laid down for the translators. And now uh, we're going to talk about the translators themselves. And they were from uh, three separate groups, uh, one being Westminster, uh, the second Cambridge University, and the third being Oxford University. And each, uh, each place had two separate companies. Uh, At Westminster, the first company uh, translated Genesis through Second Kings. Uh, that group consisted of Dr. Lancelot Andrews, Dr. William Bedwell, Francis Burley, Dr. Richard Clark, Jeffrey King, Dr. John Layfield, Dr. John Overall, Dr. Hadrian Saravia, Dr. Robert Teague, and Richard Thompson. Uh, The second company at Westminster covered the books of Romans through the book of Jude. And this group consisted of Dr. William Barlow, William Dakins, Dr. Roger Fenton, Dr. Ralph Hutchinson, Michael Rabbit, R-A-B-B-E-T, Thomas Sanderson, and Dr. Richard Spencer. Now, the group at Cambridge University... The first group there uh, translated First Chronicles through Ecclesiastes. That was Dr. Roger Andrews, Dr. Andrew Bing, Dr. Lawrence Chatterton, Francis Dillingham, Thomas Harrison, Edward Lively, Dr. Rich- John Richardson, and Dr. Robert Spaulding. Uh, the second company there translated the uh, Apocrypha. That was Dr. John Aglionby, A-G-L-I-O-N-B-Y, 
I think that's right, Aglianby, Aglianby, Dr. Richard Bancroft, Dr. Thomas Bilson, John Boyce, Dr. William Brainthwaite, Dr. Andrew Downs, Dr. John Duport, Dr. Leonard Hutton, Dr. Jeremiah Radcliffe, Dr. John Ward, and Dr. Samuel Ward. The group from Oxford University, uh, the first company there, translated Isaiah to Malachi. That was Dr. Richard Brett, Daniel Faircloth, Dr. John Harding, Dr. Thomas Holland, Dr. Richard Kilby, Dr. John Reynolds, and Dr. Miles Smith. And the second company there translated the Gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the Book of Acts, and the Book of Revelation. That was Dr. George Abbott, Dr. Richard Eads, Dr. John Harmar, Dr. John Perrin, Dr. Ralph Ravens, Dr. Thomas Ravis, Sir Henry Seville, and Dr. Giles Thompson. Okay, now that's the uh, three groups, if you will, or basically six groups in three uh, locations. Uh, but there were, uh, I guess you'd say, four surprises uh, with the selection of this group of men. Uh, the first being that the translators were not chosen based on their religious position. Now, this basically all comes down to uh, there, there were three groups, three separate groups. There was the Roman Catholic group, of course, who wanted the translations their way. There was the uh, Puritan group who wanted the translation their way, which was uh, a very rigid and strict way. And then there was the Anglican Church, which was the Church of England. And, and they wanted it done their way. And so uh, when you take into account these men that were selected, uh, you can tell uh, God had a hand in, in leading King James to select this group as they were. They, they were not chosen based on the religious position. I don't know uh, how it breaks down to, you know, so many percent were Church of England, so many were Puritans, so many were Roman Catholic. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm not sure how it breaks down, but they it, they were not based, uh, chosen based on their uh, religious position. Uh, the second surprise was that the translators were chosen based solely on the basis of their scholarly ability. Um, the list of men is, is a roll call of the best scholars in Hebrew, Greek, and biblical knowledge. And, and to translate the Bible to what he was looking for, what King James was looking for, was a pure translation, not based on any religious prejudice or any religious beliefs, but simply uh, this word in the Greek, the best definition of it is this. The best, the worst, this word in the Hebrew, uh, the best definition of it in English is this. And that's what they went on. So I, I think that was pretty good. Um, thirdly, all but one of the men selected, who was uh, Sir Henry Seville, were ordained members of the Church of England. Okay, so they did all have a license to preach in the Church of England. So they had a little bit of Anglican background, but that doesn't, you know. Uh, in, in the other words, they weren't not they were not only scholars, but they were also clerics. That you know, not only uh, professors, but there were preachers involved, as it is. Now, despite their value and worthiness, uh, the translators were very modestly paid through promotions or small rewards. In fact, 
the first two or three years were spent haggling for so long over how much to pay them between the various parties, being the king and the church officials and the Church of England, that the king wrote a letter to Archbishop Bancroft asking him to contact all English churchmen, members of the churches of England, requesting that they make a donation for the project. And you think, well, why didn't the king fund it? Well, I guess there were some political ramifications that if he paid for it, uh, think about it. They would think, well, okay, this was definitely a King James version. He, if he didn't like the translation of this word, he changed it to something he liked. So he wanted to stay out of it as much as he could. He laid down the rules that he was looking for, but he stayed out of it as much as he could. But this was the letter that, that he wrote to these Church of England. Um, uh, I quote, uh, Right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. Whereas we have appointed certain learned men to the number of four and fifty, basically fifty-four, for the translating of the Bible. And in this number, uh, divers of them have either no ecclesiastical preferment at all, or else so very small as the same is far unmeet for men of their deserts and present. And yet we in ourselves, in any convenient time cannot well remedy it. Therefore we do re hereby require you that presently you write in our name as well to the Archbishop of York as to the rest of the bishops of the province of Canterbury, signifying unto them that we do well and straightly charge every one of them that all excuses set apart when we prebend or parsonage shall next upon any occasion happen to be void, we may commend for the same some such of the learned men as we shall think fit to be preferred unto it given unto our signet at our palace of Westminster on 2 and 20 July in the second year of our reign of England, France, and of Ireland, and of Scotland. King James, unquote. So you can see by the language there, you know, that was probably a little hard to understand, but basically I'd, uh, I'd explained it. He was writing a letter to the church people saying, hey, contact the leadership and ask them to help us um, fund this uh, project so it can get done, <laughs> Okay. All right, now moving on to the translation. Um, there are, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five sections here. First of all, the predicament, the procedure, the proofreading, the procession, and then the printing. You like all the P's involved in that. All right, I kind of like to do that. Uh, number one, the predicament. First of all, uh, are you thinking of elegant university offices with immaculate decorations for these people when they come in and they have lavish food trays set out and, you know, warm, comfy chairs to sit in and tables? Oh, no, it was nothing like this at all. Much of the work was actually done in individual offices or studies at the college or church, a private place. You know, not a bunch of commotion going on, obviously. Uh, according to uh, Gustavus S. Payne, in his book, The Men Behind the King James Version, written in 1959, page 162 says, and I quote, The scholars would sit down in a stone-cold room by the fire and discuss in capable fashion the books of the Bible they were to translate. Many of them labored like monks in rooms so cold and damp, except close to the fires, that fingers and joints got stiff. They worked at odd hours, early mornings and late at night, as other duties permitted. They endured rigors that we would think beyond us, unquote. So just reading that lets you know that, you know, this was a task uh, that was not something very easy. They didn't sit down with a, uh, 
concordance like we may have today and say, okay, this Hebrew word means this. Translate it. Okay, this Hebrew word means that. Okay, translate it. This Greek word means this. Okay, translate it. They had to go based off of their knowledge, combined knowledge. That's why there was a group of several men together. And when they would read that out and say, okay, what's the best definition of this word Hebrew in the Hebrew that we can get across in the English language that people are going to understand? And, and, and sitting there talking around the fire, uh, it said when they would go, you know, they had jobs. They had uh, some of these were clerics. Some of them were professors. You know, they just couldn't stop what they were doing. This thing took several years. Uh, so they had to get together very early in the morning, very late at night. And, and it was cold a lot of times. And of course, being over several years, I'm sure it was hot sometimes. But in the winter months, it was very cold. So uh, it was a struggle for them. And as a matter of fact, one of them ended up getting sick and dying before uh, they even finished the translation. So there you go. So that was the predicament. Uh, the procedure. Uh, there were 40 unbound copies of the 1602 edition of the Bishop's Bible that were specially printed so uh, that agreed changes could be recorded in the margins. Individual members of the six committees worked by themselves on a block of assigned biblical material. Um, basically what that means is say you've got um, overall, just for an example, 10 guys, okay, and you're working on uh, the book of Genesis, and you'd split it up, let's just say Genesis had uh, 50 chapters, well, each one would, you know, they would divide it up into sections, and then they would rotate it around and check their work, everybody was involved, and it all rotated around, there was no one person translating one verse of the Bible, and, and his opinion was that, okay, all right, uh, the next thing, these scholars met regularly with other team members. Uh, variations were negotiated, and eventually an agreed-upon version was codified, or agreed upon, and written out. When completed, books of the Bible were passed on to all the other committees for review. That means that the entire Bible was perused by every single translator. It had to be agreed upon by all 54 men. Okay? Uh, the committees could send recommendations for change to the original committee, and if no agreement resulted, the disputed details would be saved for meetings of the leaders of the six committees. There was always the opinion of submitting difficult questions to experts beyond the translation team. Eventually, the entire proposed Bible, an annotated and amended Bishop's Bible, in effect, was sent to the three translation heads, and this general committee of review, with members drawn from each committee, determined a single final version. So, I mean, it was gone over and gone over and gone over and gone over until they made sure that it was right. Okay? All right, the proofreading. The complete work took six years altogether. The translation itself was completed in 1608. Every available or every able man available who was qualified was invited to come and review the translation for accuracy. So it was not only just down to these 54 translators, but they involved everybody that had a qualification of, of being able to read Hebrew and Greek and, and all that to, to look at the translation and say, yes, that is the best word uh, to translate what it was. Now that was not so with the corrupt Douay Rheims Catholic Bible. You remember they had a few people translate it and they locked it up saying nobody could read it. <laughs> All right, in 1609, the accumulated manuscript copies went to the General Committee of Review 
this general committee was made up of six men considered the cream of the crop, already selected for the project. And they met from January to September at Stationers Hall in London. All right, the procession. Uh, first of all, there was the layout of the Bible. Next, the Apocrypha was included but was placed between the two Testaments due to a historical reference rather than a biblical reference. It was not included in the Bible per se, but it was stuck between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the words added by translators were written in italics. And that, if you look in your King James Bible today, uh, you can see that. There will be a word in italics. And they went out of their way to make sure it was mentioned. Uh, going way back in Hebrew and Greek, they didn't have um, very many uh, words to describe a verb. You know, I walk fast. Uh, or they would just say, I walk, or something like that. It was a different word for it. So when they had to add a word so that it clarified the meaning, and it was their word, they put it in italics. So you'd know that was not actually a recorded Hebrew word in the original, original translation, but it was a descriptive word uh, to help you understand, you know, the, the structure of the sentence as it is. Um, the chapter and verse assignment was according to the layout of the Geneva Bible. So that's where they got the idea between the chapters and the verses there. Uh, the original used Gothic typesetting as opposed to Roman typesetting. And a, a part of that is if you look at the two, uh, Roman typesetting is, is very fancy. It's not the Times New Roman that we have on our computers today. It's a, it's a Roman typesetting, and it's a very uh, uh, colorful and descriptive writing. and does It makes it a lot harder to read. Gothic was more like a block letter so that, you know, you can read it really fast and, and easily. It's easier to, on the eyes, if, if you will. <laughs> uh, the printing. Uh, 1610, the completed work went to Robert Barker, the king's official printer. In 1611, the completed authorized version of the Bible was produced. It was sold in loose leaf for 10 shillings, and it was sold bound for 12 shillings. I don't really have a conversion to know exactly what that would cost you in today's money. I'm not sure, but <clears throat> I, while I'm sure it was valuable, I don't think they made it where only rich people could afford it. I mean, what was the point of translating if only rich people could buy it, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, characteristics of the authorized version. It was a large, elegant, Bible. It was printed in black Gothic lettering, typed in double columns on each page, which the translations or the copies we have today are that way, double columns. Uh, it contained 1,500 pages and was more than three inches thick. The title page had an extended title that contained a very critical statement at the end, uh, and I quote, appointed to be read in churches as if they didn't know that already. They wanted to make it very clear that this was the Bible to be used in the church, churches of England. All right, that's, that's what they're saying. This placed it in the general uh, genre of official church Bibles, basically, by making that statement. The Bible was originally referred to as the authorized version only. Okay, it was not until uh, the 1700s that an American publishing company frustrated over lack of sales for corrupt, from corrupted versions, came up with the idea of referring to the authorized version as the King James, 
to dilute the association of authority with the original title. I'm sure there were a lot that would come out and say, this is the authorized version of so-and-so. This is the authorized version of so-and-so. And when people would go in and say, hey, I want an authorized version of the Bible. And they're like, which one are you talking about? So that's why they said, hey, let's call it the King James Bible. That removes all doubt of which one we're talking about. And so that's where the King James name picked up. Okay, although King James never officially authorized the Bible formally, uh, to do so, again, would have been the same as if he would have uh, paid uh, for the whole process itself. There would have been that uh, thought that, well, okay, if he paid for it, then, you know, the translation was all approved by him alone and that sort of thing. So that's why he didn't authorize it formally. All right. Uh, some questions was, uh, again, with that, it could be that he did not want to demean the whole purpose behind the translation. He didn't want it to be about him, okay? And that's rare for a man in such authority. Uh, a king, usually, you know, it, it is all about him, but that had he didn't want anything to do with that. Uh, for example, the Great Bible. You remember it was authorized by Henry VIII just to break away from the Roman Catholic Church and their Bible. And so he wanted to make sure his name was attached to it. The Bishop's Bible was authorized by Queen Elizabeth to counter the popularity of the Geneva Bible. Uh, so they, it was a political move to move or to sway the opinion of the people to go to one version versus the other. Uh, King James was pretty reserved in the fact that he didn't officially uh, authorize it and he let the people choose. And in doing so, it 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 stood on its own uh respect, I guess you'd say. Now, this Bible was not, is not, nor will it ever be copyrighted. Uh, now, how copyright works uh, is when someone writes a book and they'll copyright it to protect uh, their investment in it. In other words, uh, if you quote someone's famous saying and you put it in a book of your own or a writing of your own and you earn money off of it, or even if you don't earn money off of it, you're taking what that person came up with as your own idea. And so by leaving this uncopyrighted, uh, it lets us copy any of it that we want. And, and, it, and what that is, is this is God's word. It was not King James word. So you can copy any part of the Bible you want. Now, this is the one true test of the real reason behind the printing of any Bible, to spread God's word or to make a profit off of it. All other versions that you'll find, if you look in the front, you're going to find a copyright somewhere in there. Now, with the King James, if you do have a Schofield or a Ryrie Study Bible or anything like that, there is a copyright involved, but it's with that man's notes. It's not with the Bible itself. The King, James, the King James Bible is the only Bible that is not copyrighted for that reason. God wants you to copy it. Uh, series or specialized Bibles, like we just mentioned, are copyrighted, just as I mentioned, because of their personal notes. Again, I'll mention that. It's for their personal notes. It's not for the biblical verses, as it would. Um, now, again, Robert Barker, the guy who, the King's official printer, uh, he had invested very large sums into printing the new Bible and ran into serious debt. Now remember, the, the Puritans were really stuck on the Geneva Bible well into the 1600s before, uh, I guess what you'd say, seeing the light. <laughs> so uh, there was still a division out there. There were still rivals. 
And, and from this, Barker was forced to share the duties of printing with two other rivals, one being a fellow by the name of Bonham Norton and the other one, John Beal, man with two first names, John Beal. So they divided up the printing into three sections, and they would split the proceeds three ways evenly. Uh, from this uh, came about distrust and accusations led to bitter lawsuits, and it ended up that Barker and uh, Norton, Bonham Norton, both ended up bankrupt, and several members were actually imprisoned for debt. Now, that doesn't happen very often today, but uh, it was a pretty serious matter to go into debt, and if you couldn't pay your debts, you went to jail. And so that's what happened with several of them there. Now, in 1629, both Oxford and Cambridge universities gained royal licenses to print the Bible on their own university presses. Most Bibles printed today are from the Oxford University Press companies. And the one I have in my hand right now is from the Oxford University Press. So there's that. Okay, now uh, corrections, not revisions, but there were corrections made. And there have been 13 substantial changes of different words. Again, these changes did not change doctrinal or translational beliefs, rules, or ethics. And, and I'll give you an example here. Uh, Genesis 39, 16 has the phrase in the 1611, her Lord, whereas later editions said his Lord, and that was changed in 1638. Uh, Leviticus 26, 40, uh, the phrase in the 1611 uh, says, confess the iniquity of their fathers. And then in 1616, it was changed to confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Jeremiah 38, 16, the 1611 has the phrase, so the king swear. And in later editions, they changed it, so Zedekiah, Zedekiah the king swear. So you see they're, they're kind of clarifying things. It may have been her when they should have said his or uh, confess the iniquity of the fathers and changed to confess their iniquity and the iniquity of the father. It, it's making it a little clearer. You see, there's, it's not a doctrinal change by any way. All right, that's just a few of the examples there. Um, there have been uh, 285 minor changes in the form of words. Uh, 214 of these are very minor. Uh, the word towards was changed uh, to toward. <laughs> Burnt for burned. Uh, amongst for among. So you see, it's just very simple spelling. Uh, most of these uh, 285 printing errors can be attributed to two main causes. Number one, there were no dictionaries of the English language in that day. Uh, there were several spelling variations of the same English word. It wasn't a defined, you know, accepted spelling. And, and over the years, once it came about, that's when these changed. Uh, it was not a regulated rule as it was. Um, 1755, uh, was actually uh, the first dictionary by a fellow by the name of Samuel Johnson, 1755. That's that's 144 years after this Bible was written, 1611 to 1755. So, okay. Uh, and then 1806 is when Noah Webster wrote his first dictionary. And basically, I believe it is that dictionary that laid out the laws and the rules containing the English language. And I have a... 1828 version 
of Noah Webster's English Dictionary. It's called American Dictionary of the English Language. And in the front of that book, he goes through the history of language, uh, where it started, how it evolved, if you will, um, and then the rules and, and regulations involved in language. It's very fascinating to read that if you want to read that. That's, it, it explains a lot of what this is. Um, and some some of the uh, changing of the spelling was due to the font style of certain letters that were very similar. Some of the S's looked like an F. Some of the U's looked like a V. And there was no letter J. Now, this is fascinating. There was no letter J in the English language of the 1600s. They used an I. So a J and an I was the letter I. So that's why some of it was changed, okay? So this basically comes down to 136 word changes out of 791,328 total words. And you think, well, what's the percentage of that? That represents uh, a 17 thousandths of a percent of a change. That is so small that's not even worth an argument for anyone looking for a gap that they could start an argument. Again, a lot of it was the, the, the rules involved in the English language and some of the letters were spelled or, or shaped the same way. That's where a lot of these came out. Uh, some famous correction addiction, uh, additions, 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 uh, and, and their uh, nicknames. Uh, the 1641 uh, version was called the Moore C, S-E-A Bible. The Moore C Bible. In other words, more water. Uh, in Revelation 21.1, it's... It, wrote, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. <laughs> okay. Um, the typesetter forgot the word no. <laughs> okay. And it, I mean, you think about this now. I mean, printing these Bibles out, they had to set each letter in a block to put it in a, in a press to lay out the page. And it wasn't even like straight. You had to do it backwards. So you can imagine some of these letters were probably switched around. Some of the words were switched around. It's human error that, that you know, and and so that version of the Bible it said the heaven, a new earth, and a, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth were passed away, and there was more sea. That's what it said. He forgot the word no. <laughs> All right, uh, the 1653 version was called the unrighteous Bible, <laughs> the unrighteous Bible. First uh, Corinthians six nine it. Uh, read, know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God. Again, the typesetter forgot to add the word not, so that it correctly read, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, let's see, uh, there's a couple more. Uh, the 1716 version is called the Sin Own Bible. John 5.14, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Uh, sin own more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Instead of sin, no, he flipped the N and the O, so it read, Sin own more, instead of sin, no more. Uh, a funny one is next year, 1717, the Vinegar Bible. Luke 20, verse 9, it said, Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a uh, vineyard and led it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. The section heading of that passage read parable of the vinegar instead of parable of the vineyard. <laughs> All right. 
so th there was a couple it's just human error okay so i'm gonna let it go uh there's several of them uh the funny one here is the 1810 version it's called the wife haters bible the wife haters bible uh luke 14 6 uh, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own wife also, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, instead of life, it was wife. So, you know, the wife haters Bible. <laughs> All right. Um, now, the superiority of the King James Bible. The superiority of the King James Bible. There's a fourfold superiority. And and this is uh, a section uh, brought out of D.A. Waite's book, Defending the King, King James Bible. It was superior in the original language. It was Hebrew. The two basic texts in existence in the Hebrew language, first of all, the corrupt edition by Ben Asher, uh, contained, in, contained in Rudolf Kettle's Biblia Hebraica in 1906, 1913, and 1937, and later in the Biblia Hebraica Nineteen sixty-eight to seventy-six, nineteen ninety-seven, and then two thousand four to I'm assuming today, uh, contains fifteen to twenty footnotes on changes per page, which equals out to about twenty thousand to thirty thousand changes in the entire Hebrew Old Testament text. Every modern corrupt version uses this text and others extended from it as their foundation and is almost always referenced in the introductory pages in these versions. Now, there was the correct edition by Ben Kayim, that's C-H-A-Y-Y-I-M. This is contained in the Second Great Rabbinic Bible from 1524 to 1525, or also called the Daniel Bomberg edition. So basically, the Hebrew versions came out of two editions. There was the corrupt edition and the correct edition. The corrupt by Ben Asher, the correct one by Ben Kayim. Okay. Um, understanding the King James Bible, the readability of it. I, now, some people say, well, the King James Bible is too hard to read or it's too hard to understand uh, because it uses antiquated words. Listen, the Trinitarian Bible Society published a list of 618 words it suggested were antiquated. Some of these could be understood by considering the tech, the context. This leaves about 300 words that are difficult enough that you need a dictionary to understand them. I want to go back to that first part about understanding considering the context. A very common mistake today is that people will pick up their Bible and close their eyes and flip it open to a verse and think, okay, God's going to give me my life verse right here. And they're going to read something like Jesus cried <laughs> or something like that. Uh, and it makes no sense. Um or, you know, maybe they do pull one out that's just life-changing. You know, God could use it, but I'm not saying he's going to. The point here is this. When you read your Bible, and I covered this in, in the first podcast section I did on studying the Bible, correctly studying the Bible. Read the context. Know why the verse says what it says. Uh, you can't just jump into the middle of the Bible. It's like with any book. Uh, you pick up and it's talking about, you know, uh, well, Mary, due to what happened to her yesterday, uh, was so distraught. You have no idea why Mary's distraught. You have no idea what happened to her yesterday. You've got no clue what's going on from that point. You're going to have to go back and read what happened yesterday. You're going to have to read what happened to make her distraught. The Bible is the same way. 
you've got to go through and 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 uh, a very good thing is to go at the beginning of the chapter if, if you have a a Bible that that's like a Schofield or a Ryrie Study Bible or any of the other study Bibles that has a a, a text uh, heading or, or a book heading and it gives you a little bit of the uh, what was going on in that time. You know why why did he write it in this style? Sometimes Paul wrote from prison. Sometimes he wrote to someone in prison. Sometimes he wrote to a church that was having trouble. Sometimes he wrote to a church to commend them for the good works that they were doing. It, it was all based on um, the background. And and the words involved in those chapters were based on that background. So uh, to understand and say that a word was just too hard to understand, a lot of times you read what's going on around it, you'll pick up what's going on. All right. Um, Dr. D.A. Waite, again, used what is called the Write Writer computer program. That's Write, R-I-G-H-T, Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, computer program to investigate whether the words in the King James Bible were too hard to understand. Most of the King James Bible, according to this computer program, is written on an 8th to 10th grade level. Um, it did say that Romans chapter 3 is on a 6th grade level. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, and Romans chapter 8 are on an 8th grade level. And Romans chapter 1 and the book of Jude are on a 10th grade level. Dr. Rudolph Flesch, F-L-E-S-C-H, in his book, Why Johnny Can't Read, uh, or, or he's known for that book, Why Johnny Can't Read, but in his book, The Art of Plain Talk, uh, written in 1946, rates the reading difficulty of various documents on a scale from very easy to very difficult. Now, he said, and I quote, the best example of very easy prose uh, is the King James Version of the Bible. Yeah, so making an argument that is hard to understand is just that you're impatient. That's what it is. Sometimes God wants you to spend a little time in his word and read more than just one verse to go off of life on. Okay? Now, the King James Bible itself uses a very small vocabulary. William Shakespeare used a vocabulary of about 37,000 English words. The King James Bible uses 8,000 words. Uh, consider Psalms 23. It contains 119 words total. 94 words are one syllable. 20 words are two syllables. Verse 1, shepherd. Verse 2, maketh. Pastures. Leadeth. Beside. Waters. Verse 3, leadeth. Verse 4, valley. Shadow. Evil. Comfort. Verse 5, table. Before. Presence. Runneth. Verse 6, surely. Goodness. Mercy. Follow. Ever. Five words are three syllables. Verse number three, restoreth. Righteousness. Verse five, prepares. Enemies. Anointest. So that, that's a very simple written passage. Psalms 23, it's a popular uh, chapter in the Bible. Maybe you want to start with that one if you have a difficulty reading. And, and again, listen, I, I'm not... Um, Criticizing people's reading ability. I do know some people uh, have dyslexia, dyslexia um, which is a thing where it turns words around and that makes it difficult. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how 
the structure of the King James Bible is versus other writing materials. It, it, it's, it just, it, it takes patience. It's written in a way that it forces us to be patient, uh, to talk to God, okay? Yet still, accuracy is more important than simplicity in the Bible version. In a newsletter, D.A. Waite himself stated, and I quote, the Bible is not a first grade primer. It is God's book. It is a book that must be diligently read. It is only by searching the scriptures that we find what pertains to life and death. It tells of creation, of the mighty universe, of the future or the past, of the mighty God and his wonders, of the Holy Spirit's ministry among Christians, of the Son of God's great sacrifice for sin, of home in heaven for the believer, and of a fiery hell for the unsaved. How dare we assume that his word can be encapsulated in a comic book or a version that reads like the morning newspaper? Very good quote. <laughs> Very good quote. Uh, another uh, comment, comment on it is from Leland Riken, who was a professor of English at Wheaton College in his book, The Word of God in English. Uh, pages 100 and 101, he said, and I quote, an English Bible translation should strive for maximum readability only within the parameters of accurately expressing what the original actually says, including the difficulty inherent in the original text. The crucial question that should govern translation is what the original authors actually wrote, not our speculations over how they would express themselves today or how we would express the content of the Bible. The fact that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek should not lead translators to translate the Bible in a uniformly colloquial style. Finally, a good translation does not attempt to make the Bible simpler than it was for the original audience. Um, previous generations educated the people up to the Bible, and that is what we should do today. Again, Leland Reichen, uh, Reichen on this, pages 107 and 109 in his book, and I quote, Instead of lowering the Bible to a lowest common denominator, why should we not educate people to rise to the level required to experience the Bible in its full richness and exaltation? Instead of expecting the least from Bible readers, we should expect the most from them. The greatness of the Bible requires the best, not the least. The most difficult of modern English translations, the King James Bible, is used most by segments of our society that are relatively uneducated as defined by formal education. Research has shown repeatedly that people are capable of rising to surprising and even amazing abilities to read and master a subject that is important to them. In other words, how important is it to you? That's how involved you would get into understanding it. Previous generations did not find the King James Bible with its theological heaviness beyond their comprehension. Nor do readers and congregations who continue to use the King James translation find it incomprehensible. Neither of my parents finished grade school, and they learned to understand the King James Bible from their reading of it and the preaching they heard based on it. We do not need to assume a theologically inept readership for the Bible. Furthermore, if modern readers are less adept at theology than they can and should be, it is the task of the church to educate them not to give them Bible translations that will permanently deprive them of the theological content that is really present in the Bible. Again, another good quote. You don't, uh, in plain English, you don't dumb down the Bible for it to be very easily read. 
because in dumbing it down, you lose the weight of the translation of what it is. Uh, Hebrews tells us uh, that the Bible is stronger and more powerful than a two-edged sword. By dumbing down the translation, you're dulling that sword. It has to have the content. And that's what Leland Riken is saying there. It has to have that powerful content for it to be effective. To water it down, it makes it just as powerful as these uh, other corrupt translations. All right? But also, again, even myself, uh, there are many tools available to assist in better understanding of a passage uh, of the Bible. There, there's a King James Bible dictionary. Uh, I use a King James Version Strong's Concordance. Uh, there's an encyclopedia. And another one, just as Leland Riken said, Sunday school. Sunday school. Go to Sunday school. Uh, learn the books of the Bible. Learn the history behind them. Learn uh, the events and things that were going on around it. And that'll give you a better understanding of, of what you're reading. Okay? All right. That concludes this episode and this uh, section on the history of the King James Bible. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I certainly did in studying it and, and gathering notes. Again, I'll say it again. A lot of these notes are not my own notes. I got them from various uh, preaching sermons from uh, other men involved in it. And I tried to give due credence, uh, credence where I could. Um, but it, it, we, we all need to know this. Uh, th this is something that we need to understand. Uh, the power uh, and, and the price, the cost of what it took to put this Bible in our hands. Uh, a lot of us don't really know that. And, and so studying the history behind it gives us a little better perspective on what men uh, or people went through. Um, uh, even even the great uh, uh, martyrdoms that, that they went through and risked to bring this Bible to us that we have today. Uh, thank God for them. And thank God that there are people out there willing to risk everything uh, to do God's will. And what we have in our hand today, uh, this authorized version, uh, also known as the King James Version. There is a new King James Version, not to be confused with this version. Uh, it is what I just talked about. They dumbed it down. They certainly did. But the King James Version, that is, I, in my opinion, it is God's English language Bible. It is the Word of God for the English-speaking people of today. Okay? All right, thank you for joining me, and I'm going to pick up again on another uh, study. As soon as I figure out where I'm going, uh, you'll find out, okay? All right, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day, and God bless you. Thank you.